scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray now that uh, you would bless in the richest and deepest sense of that word, the reading of the scripture. And that you will attend to our speaking of it and thinking of it in such a way that we would be captivated by it, enthralled with it, and that we would believe it and live out all its implications to your glory and our benefit, of course. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Nehemiah in chapter 1. I want to read chapter 1 through verse 8 of chapter 2. It's a good bit, but these are narrative passages, so we kind of have to see the whole of it in order to get it. So Nehemiah chapter 1, please. We've been over this a couple of times. This, of course, is the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I, that is Nehemiah, was in Susa, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have kept and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hands. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man." Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king 
And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, the let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I ask, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, the first week we set out to really talk about how we're going to think about Nehemiah. We said that um, it isn't primarily, for the Bible isn't primarily, a book of principles on how we're supposed to live. Nor do I think the primary message of Nehemiah is that of leadership training, though he was a leader and we might learn some things about that along the way. But rather, I want to take this up where it is in the context of redemptive history. Now, when we speak of redemptive history, we talk about the time through which and in which God redeems his people. It happens over time. We see it from Genesis to Revelation and how God redeems his people. And where is Nehemiah in the midst of that? And what we'll find is, I think, that Nehemiah is in the business of not simply rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and the walls around it to keep it safe, but in a very real sense is building the church. That is, in the Old Testament context, he's building up the city so that culture can develop, so that people would be able to worship God in purity. That's what we'll find as we make our way through. But not only that, I think we'll see significant glimpses of the ultimate Nehemiah, the one who really did leave the safety and the security of the palace with the king ruling and reigning and entered into a broken down city. And not only at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, built the church. And then um, we began to think in that next week about the prayer that Nehemiah prayed and how it is that he, that he prayed. Notice that was his first response. He prayed. And when he prayed, we, we see that he, is, he first went and began to organize his prayer around who God is. That is, he didn't try to find God through his circumstances, but he understood his circumstances in the midst of who God is. And we see that the prayer that we have is a very reasoned one. So it no doubt was the prayer that developed over a period of four months where Nehemiah no doubt wept some, mourned some, fasted some, and prayed. And so we see it coming down really to the wire, even to where he says at the very end of it, give success today. And so you get the sense that something's about to happen. But, but this prayer of Nehemiah begins as ours should in clarifying over time who God is 
and then rethinking all of our requests in his presence. Okay, that's we did already. Now, now today, what I want us to think through really, and I have to smile a bit because this is one sermon today that may make my old, now deceased, preaching professor somewhat happy. You know, the stereotype of all sermons is that there are to be three points, each point beginning with the letter P, and that you should have in the midst of them a couple of poems and one prayer. I mean, that was always the thing. Three points, two poems, and a prayer. And that, and I did, I've never been able to do that. Uh, usually I try to have one point, but the Puritan in me has like 15 subpoints. And I rarely have a poem unless it's a hymn, lyrics to an old hymn, that helps us to think about that. And I actually pray twice. I pray at the beginning and I pray at the end. So I've never been able to really fulfill that. But today, while I won't have any poems and I'll still pray twice, I have three points. And two of them begin with P. Now, if you can think about how the middle one can start with P, tell me, I'll use it in the second service. But I just can't think of a P word that would... So first, what I want to do is, God will help me, is make these three observations and then how we are to understand them, I think, not only in the life of Nehemiah, but ours uh, as well. And the, the first point is that of providence. P, that of providence. And what we see as we read through, especially these narratives, and we read through redemptive history, we see the providence of God. Because you see, the providence of God is God's constant care for an absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. All right? The providence of God is God's constant care for an absolute rule over all of his creation for his glory and the good of his people. And when we talk about the absolute rule over all of his creation, of course, we're speaking of God's sovereignty. That nothing comes to pass unless God ordains it. Now that may create in our minds all kinds of mystery and all kinds of wonder about how God can do that. But that he does it is no mystery at all because he's God. That's what it means to be God, the one who rules absolutely over all things, and nothing can come to pass unless he wills it. And so what we see, especially as we look at redemptive history, I think it's easiest to see as we're tracing through redemptive history, as God, by way of his providence, in various means, in various ways, gets done exactly his will, that is what he desires to accomplish in the midst of the world. You remember that in Genesis 3, we're going to rehearse this one more time, it won't be the last time probably, but just to get it in our minds that God uh, promised life to Adam if he obeyed, he didn't obey, and thus death entered but God made a promise, right? You know the promise of Genesis 3.15, one Old Testament history professor that I know says that all of the Bible 
is simply a footnote to Genesis 3.15. And that uh, Genesis 3.15, of course, is that out of the seed, from the seed of the woman, will come one who will crush the head of the, the serpent, the evil one, though his, that is the one who comes from the seed of the woman, his heel will be bruised. And so beginning at that point, we're wondering who that is and how that's going to happen. And then we come upon Abraham in Genesis 12. You can do some other things, but Abraham in Genesis 12. And God in his constant care and absolute rule over all things comes to this man and makes promises that God will fulfill. One of which, one promise, is that out of his seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And so we connect that with Genesis 3.15 and we have a sense of what's going to take place. There are other promises to this man, Abraham, about, about descendants, of course. If one's going to come from his seed, he must have descendants to continue on. Land that they'll have to occupy if they're going to be a people from whom this one will come. There have to be a people in a land where they can be together so that at a point in time, this one would come. So all those promises, God will protect this Seed of Abraham, bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him. And and we see then in Genesis 15 that that God says that this people will sojourn as slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And then they'll come out and get this land. And we say, well, how's that going to happen? I haven't time, but one of the best lessons on God's providence is to read the Joseph narrative in Genesis chapter 37 on through chapter 15. And you just just be amazed at how it so happens that the Israelites end up in Egypt. Um, Joseph is there ultimately by the sin of his brothers and by God's providence in getting him there. And there's a famine in the land. And so ultimately, Jacob's... Seed goes to Egypt. And then they have these fateful words in Genesis chapter 1. And there arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And then we see the fear of the Egyptians about the strength and the size, the numbers of the, of the Israelites, so they're enslaved and it gets worse. And then, then providentially, one of the midwives sees this baby boy and rather than kill him as Pharaoh has said to kill the Israelite baby boys, she puts him in a little basket and he's picked up by Pharaoh's daughter raised in Pharaoh's court. We realize he has to flee, he does, but God calls him and he comes back and through Moses the Israelites uh, are released and delivered out of their slavery. And ultimately they come to Mount Sinai where God calls them together as a people and he makes covenant with them. He says, you will be my treasured possession. You'll be my people and I will be your God. That's covenant language. That's, that's, that's when you hear that, that means God is, is dealing with his people. He, their God, they, his people. But he says, you must love me and obey me. And you know they didn't, but that God put a provision in the midst of this covenant that if you sin, But if you confess your sin and you repent of your sin, there is a substitute that will take your place as sacrifice. There'll be a representative who comes before God on your behalf, the priest, and your sins will be forgiven. And thus you can remain in my presence. And he makes promises to them that if they sin, they will be scattered 
but if they repent, he'll bring them back. And you know the history of Israel won't go through that, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and how the southern kingdom is ultimately overtaken by the Assyrians, and then the northern kingdom by the Babylonians. And we wonder as they're in in captivity in Babylon, what's going to happen to them? Uh, We get the prophecy of Jeremiah, it'll be 70 years. We read back through the prophecy of of, uh, of, um, of um, Isaiah, that uh, one will come, this, this, this pagan shepherd, anointed one king, whom God will call and empower, uh, and he will come, and he will ultimately send the remnant back. And so we read in the end of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, this, the very end, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up in the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has cha- charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And then in Ezra, very next, at least how we had laid out in our Bibles, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and then it goes on. And so the people return, and there they are, by, by God's amazing providence. And I've skipped about 18,000 points, all right? If I were a good Puritan, we'd be here till 4 in the afternoon. But all by way of the providence of God, you see. And now we sit here... And, 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 and the, the, the person that's most important in all of that is a Hebrew slave who happens to be cupbearer the king. Now what's fascinating to me is that we're reading about this 2400 years later. This obscure little nation, people, Israel, they're fighting in a sense for their lives to restore their city and their way of life and their worship and all of that. We've been torn and tattered and there's a remnant left of them. And there's this Nehemiah. Um, why aren't we reading Socrates if we want to read a 5th century BC person? Why are we reading him? Well, because all of redemptive history teeters upon him at this point in time. And so he receives the news and he goes to pray. And there he is by way of God's for ordination and prophecy. There he is. Uh, and providence, there he is. So important. As a cupbearer, we know he's trusted by the king, but he's still a slave. He's trusted by the king because he's the one who tests the wine to make sure it's not poisoned, so he would oversee its process and everything. And then the king has to trust that Nehemiah won't be the one who ultimately poisons him in some slick way. Uh, and so he, he's trusted, and there Nehemiah is who has and he has access to the king. And so it appears as if God puts it on his heart that he's to go back. And so he begins to pray, Nehemiah begins to pray uh, that God would give him success in uh, today before this man, Nehemiah. It's funny that, or interesting that Nehemiah, when he refers to the king of Persia, most powerful man, uh, he simply refers to him when he's praying in the, and he's in the presence of God. He merely refers to him as this man. Right? This man. And so he's prayed. Now, providentially, this same Artaxerxes is the one 
who put a halt to the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the walls. If you read through the book of Ezra, it's a bit confusing, but if you read through the book of Ezra, they're kind of companion pieces overlap in time. Uh, if you read through the book of Ezra, what you'll find in chapter 4 of Ezra is a fast forward, really. Ezra is talking about the rebuilding of the temple and the opposition that takes place, but there's a break there, and he talks about what happens in the days of Artaxerxes. He talks about what happens prior to, obviously, Nehemiah getting this word. What happened is that the, there were those who opposed the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the walls, even after the temple was rebuilt, the outsiders opposed it. They opposed it because they knew that the Israelites were never very good captives. They, many of them, especially the remnant, always went their own way. And so letters were written to Artaxerxes that said, if you let these people rebuild, they'll never submit to you. If you allow them to fortify their city, they'll be lost to you. They'll never pay your tribute. They'll never go your way. And so Artaxerxes said, all right, let's suspend the building. That was the bad news. The good news, providentially, he said and wrote in his letter, let's suspend the building until I decree it can be the building can proceed. So he left open that opportunity. And so now Nehemiah comes in the midst of this time and just so happens that the queen is there. Now, it's fascinating, isn't it? That parenthetically, we just read that the queen was sitting beside Artaxerxes. And you wonder, why do we need to know that? I don't know, except that perhaps it was more private than public. If it had been a public affair, the queen probably wouldn't be there. It would just be Artaxerxes and his people. But, but, but the queen was there. And you get the sense that perhaps in the presence of the queen, Artaxerxes was more, mm, as many husbands, civilized, uh, humane, kind, thoughtful. And so there he is, and Nehemiah comes with this request, and he says, I'm going to come today. Now, it's, I don't know, we don't know if, 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 if Nehemiah decided that day to allow himself to look sad, or if he just looked sad. But you get the impression that, that Nehemiah is into this. And so, and this day, he doesn't know quite how to bring it up to the king. He doesn't really have the place to bring it up to the king. But, but he looks sad, and you're not allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. That, that casts aspersions on the glory of the king, and how wonderful he is to be around. And so, so he, he looks sad at that moment in time. And, and the king actually notices that and says, why are you sad? Now, I'm thinking that perhaps the king is thinking, why are you, are you nervous about something, Nehemiah? Is there something with the wine? <laughs> is today the day of my assassination? I, I don't know, but you, I'd be thinking that. Why are you sad? I've never seen you like that. That's sadness of heart. And then we learn the queen is there, and then he goes on and makes, in a sense, tells him what's happening. And the king gets it because he says, what are you requesting? Well, then Nehemiah prays an arrow prayer, what we used to call her a bullet prayer. Or I don't know, there's probably a social media expression uh, that, would, uh, that would be apropos here. If you know of one, tell me I'll look cool in the second service. But, um, but then he just, he just prays as, as we do in various situations. Oh, God. I mean, I'm sure he's just, oh, God, help me. Just in his mind, just in his thought. But that's okay because he'd been prayed up. He'd been praying for four months. 
And not only been praying, you can tell he's been planning. And so he makes his request. And it's outlandish to this one who um, uh, had already ceased the building, had already seen the logic, we can't let these people rebuild. And now here's this slave who's a cupbearer to the king is going to make this request. Let's, let's get it going again. Let's fortify the city that you're convinced if it's fortified, it won't submit to you. And not only that, Nehemiah has no wherewithal, no resources, nothing to go back. Here he is, the slave, and he makes this request of the king, send me that I may rebuild it. And so the king says, how long will you be gone? We don't know what Nehemiah responded, but he responded because he knew that he was, how long it would be. He knew he'd have to, in fact, even build himself his own house. And so he, he must have had an answer that satisfied the king. And, uh, and, and, and then he, he also says, oh, by the way, uh, could you pay for this? You know, send letters to everybody so we can, we can use their beams and their timbers, their timbers to make beams and so forth and so on. Oh, yeah, uh, you'll need to build me a house when I get there. And so the king granted, and Nehemiah knew that the hand of his God was upon him. How do you know that? He knew it because he'd prayed. He knew it. Because he prayed. And what he saw was so outlandish. What he saw was so beyond. I mean, it was, I mean, it was not even beyond isn't even the right word. It was unthinkable. That now this Hebrew slave now would be able to command the resources of the king to rebuild the culture ultimately, in Jerusalem and keep them safe so they could build and be, so they could worship the living God. (sighs) Providence. I I don't know about as you think about your own life, but but here we are together by God's providence. I I don't, you know, you think back about all the different things that, that brought us here to be together with one another. Some of you may be your first day and you're thinking, whoa. But really, this is no accident that we're all together today in this particular place, at this moment in time, in this particular church, building together. Building one another up. And, and here we find ourselves. Hold on to that. Second observation that doesn't begin with, with, um, with P. But somehow Nehemiah knows that he's called by God to do this. I mean, it's clear that he knows that this is a special calling upon his life uh, to, to do this. Now, there's some he'll take this and say, well, we can understand then by this passage how it is that God calls us to particular things. I mean, clearly he had an inner desire for the glory of God and, 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 a, and a love for God's people. And so when he saw that the walls were down, he was moved to weep and to mourn and to pray. And perhaps through that process, he says, I'm the man, God, send me. And, 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 and he had other people around him. He was, he had other servants in verse 11 who were praying with him, the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And so there were others with him and perhaps they confirmed that call. And we would say, yes, if you have a sense of a calling from God, you should have it confirmed by others who, who know you. And, and, and perhaps even it was deeper than that. Perhaps even God spoke to him in a particular way. Our friend Jerry Bridges, uh, has an expression that he, he uses and, he, he knows it's a bit controversial. He knew it was a bit controversial and, and all of that. 
but he talks about the inaudible voice of God. <laughs> that somehow we know that he's speaking to us, even though we haven't heard him speak to us. I mean, we haven't heard an audible voice, but, but we know that these thoughts that we have about what we're to do are really from God, and we can't avoid them, can't get away from them. Now, Jerry even says, now, be careful with that. That can be abused and, and misused and all of that. Be very humble about those things that might happen to you twice in your life. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but, but that, that's, you get a sense that he was so convinced about, about all of that. And, and it seemed to be confirmed by opportunity and by Artaxerxes. And so all those things we would line up about this sort of inner sense of call and a confirmation of that call and it being consistent with scripture as this seemed to be the people coming back and rebuilding Jerusalem and all of that and, and having confirmed by opportunity. All that might be right, but I don't think that's the point. <laughs> that takes a little work to get there. Too much work to get there from from this passage. But clearly, there is a sense of call here that Nehemiah knows. Um, but we realize that calling is important to all of us. Then in God's economy, each of us is called. We're first called out of darkness into light. That he summons us, God does. And by his, what our tradition calls irresistible grace or effectual calling. Somehow it's a calling that's effective. And he calls us out of darkness into light. We believe. And we're called then, each of us, in a very general way then, called to be servants, as Nehemiah was a servant of the Lord. And to be a servant of God, that calling, just in a general sense, is to cast aside serving ourselves and taking upon that which pleases our master. That's being a servant. We call that technically repentance and faith. And, and you see, that is, is not a sacrifice for us. <laughs> it isn't a sacrifice, feels it sometimes. But if we think about it, what could be better than serving our master, who is our all-wise, all-powerful, loving, heavenly father? Could there be anything in serving ourselves that would be better than serving him? So we're called to be his servants. Now, interestingly, of course, if you take this through the Latin, and some of us have been drugged through Latin. I was. Mrs. Beatrice's class. The ninth grade. She drugged me through it. Fascinatingly, I still have my ninth grade Latin book to this day. I don't know how I got it. I don't think I would have stolen it, even though that wouldn't have been beyond my character in the ninth grade. But I can't imagine that I would have wanted it. <laughs> but I have it. Uh, anyway, that's beside it. But we know that the, the, the call in Latin it comes out to us as vocation, ultimately. And when we think about vocations, we think about our callings, we think about a vocation as that which we do for a living. And that's all right. But as a Christian, we realize that calling is bigger than that. We're called by God to submit ourselves to him, to allow him to define us and direct us, so that we find our delight in serving him. 
in very, I got three D's, I'm doing good. Uh, and, and, and in various spheres, for instance, we have callings, some of us, uh, to be fathers, husbands and fathers. That's a calling. And so as the servant of my master, I submit to him and I ask, what's it mean to be a husband? What's it mean to be a father? How may I obey you in this, that I may bring you delight and that I may delight in you? Or called some of us to be mothers, Mother's Day. Wives. So you go to the Lord and you say, what does it mean to be a wife, to be a mother? What's it mean? How do you direct me in this, that I may delight you and be delighted? Um, He calls us, certain times in our lives, to be children of parents. That's a calling, kids. That's a calling to be a child. What's it mean in that sphere to be a child How am I to respond and relate to my parents? We're we're called to be friends. We're called in the body of Christ to serve God and to serve by serving one another. What does that mean, that particular calling? We're called to be citizens. We're called in particular vocations of, 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 of work, for instance. And, and uh, called some to be plumbers, some to be mechanics, some to be teachers, some to be pastors, some to be professors, some to be doctors, some to be clerks, whatever, right? Those, you need to see that as all calling because we're submitting ourselves to the Lord in each one of those callings. And we're saying, God, how is it that I glorify you in this? And this calling that you've given to me? Because you see, that's how God meets the needs of his people and the needs of his world. God could raise our children directly. And oh, many of us have made that cry. <laughs> Take them, Lord. <laughs> They're yours, Right? <laughs> See you when they're 37. Uh, but, uh, and he does raise our children, but he uses means to raise our children, parents to raise children, and perhaps a church and a village and all of that. But whatever that is, he uses means. He could supply bread directly. He did it in the wilderness. They had manna. Uh, he could do it directly, but he doesn't do it that way. He does it by way of means. And so Luther said that these means are God's masks. We're God's masks so that he can supply the needs of his people and even others. And so what we need to think, I think, as we come now to Nehemiah, is that we're called together by his providence. Here we are. We're called together to build up the church. You remember in Ephesians 4, I read this a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, um, that um, Paul writes to the church there about what it means to be uh, the church. I'll find it. Here we go. Um, and in chapter 4, verse 11, he said, he's, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints... For the work of ministry, that is service, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every doctrine 
by human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes, and so forth. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up, that is to be built up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, held together, by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's our calling together. Providentially, here we are. Whatever else you may know or not know, about your vocation, about your calling. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've been called out of darkness into light to serve him. And know that you've been called to build up the church. Not to build buildings necessarily, but to build up people in their lives so that together we grow to maturity. That's our calling. And so in the midst of this calling... Some of us are Sunday school teachers. Some of us take meals. All of us give. All of us share our faith. Some are gifted especially to do that. We are merciful towards each other, compassionate towards each other. We bear each other's burdens. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We teach as God gives opportunity. Some are gifted to do just that. We minister to physical needs, material needs with one another, to bless each other in various ways. And that's our calling together. The roots of it is love. Remember when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. 1 Corinthians 12, he lays out gifts of the Spirit, these gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit for the common good that we may serve one another. But he says, here's the point of it. Really love. Chapter 13, that's why it's in the middle there. That's why he goes to love. He says, this is the more excellent way. Don't worry so much about gifts. Love each other. And if you're loving each other, the gifts will follow. If you're loving each other, then God will meet needs in various ways. Oh, you may know a particular area in which you seem to be gifted and it works But really, if you are gifted and you don't love, it's meaningless. And so pursue love. Nehemiah loved deeply. And all of this followed because he loved the glory, the name of God. And he loved the people of God. And then God used him. No doubt he used the other people he was praying with him in various ways too. The gifts followed. Finally, third point, and I'll be quick about it. Though it's summer, there's no Sunday school, so maybe I'll do a little Sunday school. But, but the last one, P, he prayed. Okay? We prayed. So praying fits, you see, in the midst of our, our calling. And, and could I suggest this, um, just to get to the heart of it, that prayer provides the power for the means that God uses in our service to one another. The prayer is the power behind the means. Nehemiah didn't jump right in to asking Artaxerxes for all that he needed. He began by going to God. And there were two triggers, we said, that moved him to pray. One was he saw the reality of the situation. 
And the reality of the situation was that it was desperate. The reality of the situation that the walls were down. The reality of the situation was the people of God were vulnerable. The reality of the situation is that all the promises of God seemed to hinge on the temple being rebuilt and Jerusalem being rebuilt so that a person could come out of that people to bless all the nations of the world. And, and so it seemed then that everything went, was hinged upon that. And so it was desperate. And there's a sense in which Nehemiah was helpless to do anything about it. He was in Susa. This was in Jerusalem. He had no resources. He was a slave. He couldn't even leave the the citadel. He couldn't even leave the palace without getting arrested. What could he do? Now, that helplessness doesn't always lead to prayer. Sometimes that helplessness leads to discouragement and despair. And doing nothing. I know that in my own life. But what led him to prayer was not simply the reality of the situation and his hopelessness in it. But also that he knew God and he knew the promises of God. And so that's where he went. He went to who God is. And he says, you're the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, meaning Yahweh, meaning I am. You are God, sovereign over everything. But that's the name you've given to your people, I am, so that we can relate in covenant with you. And so you are for your people. You are all that you are, and you're everything for your people. And so Nehemiah went to God. And then he knew what God had promised. And he said, God, this is what you've promised. Please bring it to pass. You promised a people for yourself. You promised Israel. He quotes Deuteronomy in verse 8 of Nehemiah 1. And he says, um, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're faithful, I'll scatter you among the uh, unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and they had, and keep my commandments and do them, uh, though your, out, your outcasts are as ut- in the utmost parts of, the heaven, of heaven, from there I'll gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. And so he says, this is what you've promised, God. Here's the only way I see out of it. I'm going to ask Artaxerxes to send me and finance it. And so he prays. Now, I know, please understand. I know that prayer is a mystery. We can come up with 50 reasons why it seems Odd at best to pray. If God knows what we're going to ask before we ask, why ask? If he's sovereign over all things, why does he need us? Uh, it would be scary if I told God something and he said, never thought of that. Good idea. Let's do it. Um, or if he had a plan and he changed it because I had a suggestion, that would scare me. It's like, why didn't you think of this in the first place, God? Sort of like when you go to your doctor and you have to uh, you know, suggest a medication. You think, why didn't you know this? I got it off a commercial. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, it scares you. That will, you know, would scare you if that would. So, so why am I even doing this? Uh, we could list all those reasons, but the truth of the matter is, if you read through the scripture, all the great saints pray. They simply pray. It's, it's, it's a heartbeat. It's an instinct. It's a breath. It's their life. And all the saints throughout history prayed. And you could say, well, we ought to pray because God commanded it. Shouldn't we take his advice? Shouldn't we just on the face of it say, this must be a good thing. He said to do it. The wise one said to do it. 
And of course, we know prayer is relational. We hear God speak in the scripture as Nehemiah did, and we pray in response to who we know God to be and his promises to us. And we know, as we thought last week, I think in a very helpful way, at least for me, that, that as we begin to pray, our first, our first point is to clarify in our minds who God really is, to make sure we know who he is, and then rethink all of our requests in his presence, in who he is. I think that's what Nehemiah did over time. And as we do that, you see, our requests become increasingly clarified to the point where we probably end up praying something like, oh, I stole these words from somebody, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Nehemiah prays, you see, and it ultimately is the fuel, the power behind the means that God will use to accomplish his will. We know that the word of God is powerful. We know that, that the, the gospel is the power of God into salvation to all who believe. We know that the word of God is, 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 is living. It's, it's, it's alive. It's like a two-edged sword. Pierces where nothing else can pierce. We know that all scripture is God-breathed and as such it's profitable to train us up for godliness. But in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul speaks of the sword of the Spirit being the word of God, he doesn't stop there. In Ephesians 6 and verse 18, he's talking about dealing with even uh, Satan himself and his demons. He says this in verse 18 there. Verse 17, he says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that my words may be given to me in opening my that words uh, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You see, Paul knew that when you take up the word of God, which the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, you must take it up praying. Take it up praying. God, make this effective in my life. One of the reasons why I pray before I read the scripture, not after I read the scripture and before I preach, isn't because we don't need help when I'm preaching, but to cover the whole thing. And I hope the habit that you get into is anytime you open your Bible, you open it praying. God, make this word effective in my life. God, help me to understand this. Help me to submit to it and not be resistant to it. God, please help me to see it, Holy Spirit, illumine it to me. Make it, bring lights upon it so that it pierces my heart. And not just take it up with the assumption that, oh, I can get this. I've read this before. I know what it's going to say. I can do this. So here's, here's, here's putting all this together, if we could. In God's providence, we're here together. We've been called to serve him, which ultimately means to build each other up in him. To do that, of course, we must know who he is. We must see the reality of the situation, which it's hopeless 
I really can't do anything for you. You really can't do anything for me. Not what we really need. And so we must pray that God will take every means that we use and make it effective in our lives and the lives of each other. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you must pray. I mean, what is, what is more marvelous on the one hand and scary on the other than holding one of our little kids in the nursery? Realizing what's ahead of them in the world in which we live. And then you begin to pray. We pray even then that God would make powerful every means to save this child and to grow them up in the faith. Right? We pray for preschool kids, for Sunday school teachers in the elementary ages. If you're a teacher and you don't pray, don't teach. Pray. What will motivate your praying is you see the reality of the situation, but you know God. And you delight in the honor of his name and the lives of his people. And so you pray for these little kids. You pray that the means that you use from the scripture memory to gluing macaroni on a piece of paper in the shape of a cross, that God will use that to build that little one up. And for our yoggers, whether it's uh, small groups or whether it's bringing cupcakes, whatever it is, mission trips, we pray that God would make effective every means that we use in the lives of the kids as if you're a life group leader, if you're a Bible study small group leader, if you're sitting in a small group, be praying that God would use what you say, how you act, what you do to build up another person. And it's amazing what God does in the midst of that. And three years later, you hear somebody say, you remember when you said, and you go, nope. And you remember when you, nope. And they go, that changed my life. And you go, wow, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. Here we are. We're to serve one another. If we don't pray, it won't work. But if we pray and take up every means God makes available to us and gives us, this church will be built. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that you would do just that. I pray what we sang, that you would take our voices and enable us to sing praises. And as we sing praises, that we'll be able to clarify in our minds who you are, that you'll take our lips and let them be filled with messages from you, that we can encourage one another and speak to one another and share with one another in a way that builds people up. Oh, it may in a moment convict of sin, but we pray there's also a word of grace and forgiveness in the midst of that. And we lead and guide by these words. You would take our minds, God, and just not let us be philosophers and debate and think about this and that. 
But you would narrow our minds so that we would think your thoughts after you. Which is really broadening our minds to see things as they really are. And you would use every power that you would choose to enable us to build one another up in love. And you would take our resources, our silver, our gold, whatever it is that we have, and use in such a way that you would build your church in this place and through this place. Bless those, God, who do missions. Bless those, God, who teach. Bless those, God, who take meals. Bless those, God, who share their faith. Bless those, God, who give. That all of those actions and so many more will show the fruit that the good hand of the Lord was upon it. Pray, God, for those who struggle on this day. Some with cancer, I think of Marjorie Miller. Some with, even as we might say, the flu and the deep, serious flu as Jennifer Leib has asked us to pray for her. For those raising kids and the difficulty there, we pray that you would grant grace and empower each of us to share with each other in such a way that you would be known and they would be blessed. We're grateful that our dear brother Jimmer Miller has come back from his medical tour of duty uh, in the Middle East with the military and, and that the work that he did was good, we pray, and that he is now back safe with us. Father, we pray that you would use every means that you will choose to build us up as we serve one another. This I pray in Jesus' name.